Well, that was a little disturbing, I imagine. Hard to watch, um, putting those two together. I, I've asked uh, Terry Esau if he'd come, and uh, Terry and Mary have been in the church for, uh, since their kids were about so tall, and Terry spoke at our men's retreat, and, and Terry actually wrote that song uh, a number of years ago. And I said, Terry, I'd love to, to play that. And, 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 and I just wanted to ask you, why in the world did you write that song? Because you know, there's a lot of dissonance between what's going on up there and, and those kind of, they could be kind of nice words by themselves. Right. So it was 1992, April 29th, when the L.A. riots hit. I'm sure a lot of you remember sitting in front of your television watching that. I was watching it for like three hours or whatever, and just with my mouth open. And I just thought, man, hatred is just spreading. And, and I thought, we have to do something about this. We can't just sit by and watch this. And... I didn't know what to do, so I went to my recording studio and I, and I wrote that song as a response to the L.A. riots. And I thought, if hatred can spread, maybe love can spread too. And it's probably the simplest lyric you've ever heard in a song. <laughs> you know, if you wanted to change the world, I would start by loving you. If loving was all we knew, baby, we could change the world. That's basically the lyric to the whole song. But... Um, I think as Christians, that's our challenge. We have to start by loving one person, and hopefully that spreads. So that, that was my purpose in writing that. Thanks, here. You know, I, as I look at the series Good Neighbor, what we're talking about is what our mission is all about, is to, make, to you know, basically take that next step to know, follow, and become like Jesus. In a world that when I look at it like that, you go, whoa. But what does it look like? for you and for me to take whatever that next step is. Like Terry said, you can just love that person that you come in contact with because there are all kinds of covert wars and covert kind of cruelty that takes place in office places, on playgrounds. It takes place in family life. It can take place in business worlds. It can take place in church life where, where people hurt one another. And what does it look like for us as a church to begin to start saying, what's that one step? What's, what this week, what this day, God, this morning when I wake up, what does it look like? For me, as we talk about being good neighbors, what does it look like for me to be the kind of neighbor that expresses love in a situation where internally that's not maybe what I want to do? How do we do that? What does that look like? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that as you take these words and as we think about this, this series about good neighbor, and what does it look like um, that you would really teach us and, and cause us to become more um, aware of how you can, you can be engaged in transforming the world through us, the worlds that we live in, the places that we are face-to-face -face with people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, the world that we saw up there is in many ways the world that Jesus lived in. And as he, as he did, there's a point where he told a story. And it's a story of a neighbor that we should be, the neighbor we should be in a world of religious and racial and economic hatred and division. It pervaded his world just like it pervades ours. 
And so he tells this story as a lawyer comes to him, and this lawyer has a question, and the lawyer, um, waiting to hear the answer, eventually Jesus gives this illustration, which is a story that's told in the Gospel of Luke, and only in the Gospel of Luke. You can look in all the other um, parts of the Bible, but you'll find only in chapter 10 of of Luke's Gospel is this story told. And it's really a well-known story. Even to people who may have never cracked open a Bible, this story is probably known to some degree because it's a story that has inspired paintings and sculptures and, and, and satire and poetry and films and it actually is a, a, a story that has inspired the names of hospitals and, and even daily news segments that we might watch on TV. And it's familiar to most of us as the parable of the Good Samaritan. But it's really interesting. Luke, and as you read through it, it doesn't say necessarily anything about it being a parable. Some scholars today actually believe that this may have been a true story, an account that Jesus used because people were somewhat familiar with it, and it became kind of like one of those local good news stories. But it could be just a parable. Um, I look forward to asking Jesus that someday. But it's a story of a man who was mugged as he was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, a very common path to go. Um, Businessmen would travel this. Levites and priests would travel this route because it was kind of like their Brainerd, Minnesota, if you want to think of it that way. It was their vacation area. It was flush with green and and, and great water. It was um, down kind of in a, a lower level. And it's this place, as this man was walking, that he was mugged And he was left for dead. And so in the time of Jesus, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notorious for its danger and difficulty. And so if you see on a map, you'll see that, uh, I'll get it up here in a second. Great. Jerusalem and Jericho is really, it's just about a 15 to 17 mile, it's about um, range from each other. So um, by car, it takes like 12, 15 minutes even, you know, to get to that one place or the other. But it was a, it was a good day's walk. You kind of walk to that. It would t- take time for them to walk there. Um, Martin Luther King Jr., in, in a speech that he gave called, I've Been to the Mountaintop, on the day before his death, described the road as follows. He says, I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem, we rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got to that, on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as a setting for a parable. It's a winding, meandering road. And if you look at this next picture and slide, you'll see that's kind of how it looks. There's, there's a kind of a road that goes through all the crevices of those mountains that would go from the north part from above sea level to below sea level. And, and King continues, it really is conducive for ambushing. You start out in Jerusalem, which is about 2,100 feet above sea level, and as you travel down that road through that wandering path, you you get about 846 feet below sea level. So it's just kind of downhill path. And in the days of Jesus, it came to be known as Bloody Pass. You know, we kind of talk about this route, uh, this bypass that we have on 12 being kind of a destructive, difficult, deadly pass. Well, that's kind of, they, they're kind of like, this is bloody pass. There was kind of all throughout that time, how do we make this a safer road for them? Well, as King goes on, he says, as you know, it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking And he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them, lure them over, and and make a quick and easy robbery. 
And so the first question that the priest asked, and the first question that the Levite asked, this is what comes to their mind, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? Our king continues, but then the good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And that's really a crucial difference between the good Samaritan and one who is in, in a good neighbor versus one who isn't. It's the question, if I do not help, what will happen? It's me-centered versus someone who, who is other-focused. This is far more than a story about how do you help someone with a need. It's about becoming a follower of Jesus who is filled with compassion and mercy and love. And when they see the world that they live in, they have an opportunity to step into it with the presence of God, to bring God's kingdom, his rule, his reign into every situation that they're involved in. It's that personal, what can I do in this life, in this place, with this person, that I might step in and be the kind of neighbor that Jesus seems to be talking about. It's not just a trite story of helping someone in need. It's a story when you really read through it, and as we kind of look at it, it's a story of apathy and excuses and hypocrisy and justification and a whole lot more. So quickly this morning, I just want us to run through three things as we kind of move through the story and talk about the first in this series. As we look at this series, we're going to be looking at what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit, and the first one is love. And the context of the story is important, and we're going to talk about that, and then we're going to talk about the contrast that we see in the story, and then finally just talk briefly about the content in the story. And the context is really interesting, because if you look at chapter 10, you see verses 25 through 39, if you read gospel stories and just read the stories if they're just kind of unrelated to one another, you don't get the full message of what the writer is trying to get across. He puts this story after chapter 10, verses 1 through 24, for a reason. You see, in chapter 10, chapter 10, verses 1 through 24, he's talking to people about the fact that there is, um, he says, he sends out 70. And, he, and Jesus sends out these 70. And it's an important statement. You have to understand, so what happened prior to that? Well, prior to that, in chapter 9, Jesus sends out the 12. So why is he sending out 12, and then why is he sending out 70? Well, the reason he sends out the 12 is because you have the 12 who mirror, in a sense, the 12 patriarchs who were the people who developed and were the ancestors of, of the land of Israel and to the people of Jew, the Jews. Well, when he comes to the 70s, you now have another step. Not only has Jesus sent out the 12 for the Israel, but when he gets to the 70, he's sending out 70 in a statement that in order to know that, you got to go back to one other place in Scripture, and it's Genesis chapter 10. See, Genesis chapter 10 is, is a story that happens just before Abraham and the selecting of Abraham and the people of Israel. And it's the story of Noah after the flood. And after the flood, he has three sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. And in Genesis chapter 10, it's about the table of nations. Genesis chapter 10 is the Bible's way of saying, these three descendants of Noah filled the earth. They were the ones when it said, when God said, be fruitful and fill the entire earth. These three are the ones that went throughout the entire earth. And if you look at his sons, you'll see that Japheth, they talk about the fact that he has 14 sons and descendants. Ham has 30 and Shem has 26. And as you add those together, they come up to this wonderful number of 70. Now, in your Bible, some of you will read 72. How many, if you have, read 72 in there? Okay. 
Now, it was really, this is something that's plagued me for a long time. What's it, you know, what does this mean? I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards, but we're not gonna, we don't have any time to go through the difference between 70 and 72. To do with the Hebrew uh, and the Septuagint translation, because when you get to the Greek, it's a really interesting thing. They write 70, and then they write the word duo next to it. And so they're kind of saying, we know that in the Hebrew it's 70, and in the Greek, the Septuagint is 72. We're not going to go into that. Okay? What we're going to make, the point is to understand why this story is so important, you need to understand the context. And the context is this. Jesus has sent out the 12 to the nation of Israel. Now he's sending out the 70, going back to Genesis 10, to the entire world. There's, three things that are hap- There's two things that are happening here. He sends out the 70 as a way of, of preparing kind of what they call the proto-evangelism. It's the yeah, pre-evangelism. He sends them out into this area to tell people about Jesus, to do miraculous signs in the name of Jesus, so that when Jesus dies and he's resurrected and the message from Jerusalem begins to go and spread throughout the earth, they have already been told about Jesus. They've already seen the signs that have happened through the followers of Jesus. So he's preparing them. The second thing is prophetic. He is making a prophetic statement. He is saying that to the nations, this gospel, the kingdom of God, he is sending out people who are followers of him who will bring the kingdom of God everywhere they go. And so he's saying that throughout the nations, eventually this kingdom, which he has come to bring, is not going to just be to the people of Israel, but it's going to be all people everywhere. It's going to be God living through you, where you work, where you go to school, where you live, in your homes, with everybody. And so you get to this point, and, and, you, and you say, here is Jesus sending out these 70, and they come back. And you know what? They come back so excited because they have gone out, and they've seen, as they've mentioned the name of Jesus, they've seen healings, they've seen works. In fact, one of the things they say, if you look at Luke chapter 10 in this passage of Scripture, they come back and they say, even demons submit to your name. And they're excited Unbelievable, the power of God in your kingdom, the availability of God in our life situation to see God transform people. And you know what's really interesting is Jesus doesn't get real excited at that moment because he's concerned about them. He goes, you know what, that's really cool, guys. I'm so excited about that. But what I want you to take and be excited about is that your names are, anybody know, written in heaven. It's this really interesting time where Jesus says, I don't want you getting caught up with all your worth and what you do and your work and all the things that you're about. And you may see God do some really cool things for you. But what I want you to get caught up in is that your names, that you are written in, in heaven by the work of God and his love and his grace. I want you to find your identity, not in what you're doing, but in the fact that you are God's child. And that you are receiving his love and you're living out that love. Now as you see that, What's really interesting is Jesus kind of contains his excitement for a moment and says that to him because he's great at teaching moments. And then I think he turns. This is my paraphrase. He turns and he goes, yes. Now, it's, it's true because listen to what it says. It says in the scripture that Jesus, and it's the only time it says, is full of joy through the Holy Spirit said, I praise you, Father, that you revealed these to little ones, ones that are not schooled and educated, ones that only want to follow me and allow that love that they experience from me to to flow through them. And the reason he's so excited, it says he's full of joy through the Holy Spirit, is because at that point, he looks and he goes, Father, this is going to spread to the whole world. You get that? He is so excited. This is going to happen. 
It's happening right. I see it in these followers. And, and if they just keep connected to the fact that they are loved by me, then they're going to have an impact throughout the whole world. That's why, as you keep this in context now, here he is talking about being loved by God. Now what does he do? He moves to another story. And what's the story all about? If you're going to be a sent one, because this is the context, if you're going to be a sent one, a good neighbor, where you live, it's rooted in God's love, and here's what good neighbors look like. They love of others. Through them, they are sent, you are sent, to every place you go with the presence of God, which means you bring his love, which you experience, into the love of others. You bring his joy. You bring his peace. You, you bring the patience you've experienced. You, you bring his faithfulness and his goodness and the kindness and, and all these things you've experienced, you bring that into the lives of others. Now, that's the context that sets up this story. So let's continue as you see what, in a sense, he says, here's what you're sent to do, this is what love looks like. Now let's look at what love really looks like. He, he comes to the lawyer, he approaches, the lawyer approaches Jesus. Now, he's not an attorney the way we think of attorneys. He is, an act, he is a guy who's a legal expert with regard to the law of Moses. So he's that kind of lawyer. He knows every legal rule in those five books of Moses. He really is steeped in that. So it says in, in, in the story here, an expert in the law of Moses stood up to test Jesus. And his question that he asks is a burning question in Jesus' day. Because you've heard this in other portions of Scripture. So this question's come up before. And the question is this, what must I do to, inter- to, to um, inherit eternal life? Now you kind of go, that's an interesting question. Didn't all the Jews believe in eternal life? No. The Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe really there was an eternal life. They didn't really have much. They just said, we can't know. The Pharisees, the experts in the law, the scribes, they were the ones who said, hey, look, as we read it, there is an eternal life. And so there was this debate. Think about it. In the church, there was a debate whether there was an eternal life or not in the Jewish faith. And so they're really asking this Jesus. I love what Jesus' response is. Jesus looks at him and goes, you're the legal expert. How do you read it? I mean, you're the one who knows. You tell me what you think. And the lawyer answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is listening. And, and, and his, here's what he, he goes, good answer. You ever, ever watch Family Feud? Good answer. I mean, good answer. You know, and it's the dumbest answer in the world. You know, but they're all good answer. Jesus meant it. It was a good answer. Jesus doesn't stop there. What I think is so cool is that so often he knows us. You know, he knows us so well. If you start to follow and you start to walk with Jesus, he's going to put you, maybe even today, putting you in a place where he's going to kind of prod you to be more than you think you are. He's going to start to kind of pick away at some things that you might feel secure and comfortable about. And so... Here's the first contrast in the story. Because he begins to press into it. And, and the first contrast in the story is the difference between knowing and doing. Okay, he sets the context. He says, you know, you're loved by God. If you live in my love, if you have your identity there, then your identity should be one as a servant who loves others. Okay, let's get that straight. Here's the context. Now let's talk about the contrast. And the first contrast is there's a contrast between knowing and doing. And so Jesus doesn't let this guy get away. He basically says, we can know a whole lot about the Bible, yet, like the lawyer, do little of it. 
We can study it. We can understand it. We can be an expert. We can, uh, he could school any one of us with regard to the five books of Moses. And Jesus looks at him and he says, you know what? You have to understand that, that in the kingdom of God, he's about closing the gap. He's not about us getting more and more knowledge and that we know more, we have more understanding, and we say we believe certain things. But he's saying, well, if you say you know this and you believe it, then you'll do it. There was a seamlessness in the life of Jesus. You look at the life of Jesus, and you'll see that everything he believes, he does. Jesus couldn't one moment be speaking about love and the next moment ripping a neighbor or gossiping or cutting someone down. I mean, this is challenging stuff to think about because I look at my life and I know I don't have that kind of seamlessness. He couldn't come to a service and sing about the love of God and then harbor attitudes of, 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 of hatred or bitterness or harbor attitudes of, of kind of a sense of arrogance where you begin to build walls and you think, well, that, they're like that, but I'm not. And so he kind of turns to the guy and he says, listen, you know, you know a lot about it, but we're not talking about what you know. He says, you have answered correctly good answer but do this and you will live you want to experience eternal life it's not just life out there the word eternal means not just eternal in the sense of length of life going on forever that is part of it the other part of that very word means a quality of life it means the way that heaven begins to move into our life now and begins to take what we believe and move it towards what we do so that they become seamless rabbis in that day actually taught that you didn't really know something till you actually did it now, let me give you kind of how that makes sense. You don't actually know something until you do it. I could study all kinds of things around fishing. And I could tell you all kinds of things around bass fishing and this because I've read it and I've taken actually some tests on it. How many would like me to go out on a guide and, and, do, and teach you muskie fishing? Come on, guys. What about a pilot? You know, let's say I read all kinds of stuff. I've just, I'm really book smart on this thing. I know it all, and I've taken tests and exams, and yet I've never flown a plane. How many are going to go out on a plane with me? You, you see what, Paul, what he's saying? He's, you really don't know something until you actually do something. Think about it this way. So often, when I think Jesus is talking about, even in the church, we can know all kinds of things. In fact, sometimes church people are the scariest people. Hear this. You've got to hear this. Sometimes we're the scariest people because we know so much. But people look at our lives and they go, but they don't seem to match up with their attitudes. I didn't promise this would be one of these messages you come home and go, wow, that was so good. I feel so good about me. Because that wasn't happening here. In fact, when, when Jesus starts to push this, the lawyer, like any of us, who's not crazy about being called out for deficiencies, I can tell you, I get reactive and defensive. He becomes a bit defensive and begins to justify himself. It says, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus. You ever find that when someone starts kind of pressing in, I find this in myself. When people start to press in, how you begin to become defensive and then deflective. That's what this question is. Well, well yeah, okay, uh, you, you do this and live, that's great, but who, who really is my neighbor? You, you know, sometimes you can ask questions that really are questions to truly understand, and then there's sometimes questions just to kind of, kind of the heat's too hard. And so you kind of, let's, come on, you've done this. That's what he's doing. So Jesus says, okay, I, I realize by being logical and kind of in your face about this contrast, it isn't working, so let me tell you a story. 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers, and they stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Like, be in the mind of the lawyer. He's going, okay, yeah, interesting story. Um, and then he says, a priest happened to be going down on the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite. When he comes to the place and saw the man, he passes by on the other side. Now catch this, because I think this would have just pricked the, not just the lawyer, but all the people listening, but a Samaritan. And look at that in a moment. But a Samaritan. There's a big but there. As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity. The word is compassion. His guts were moved. He took pity on him, and he went to him and bandaged his wounds and pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now here's three more contrasts. Not only is it about not just knowing, but it's about really bringing the gap together and doing it's the contrast of what I would call callousness and compassion. Jesus points out the callousness of the religious leader compared to the compassion of a good neighbor. Now, and, and what I think is really interesting is we're going to look at this good neighbor, but one thing I want you to note is he was a businessman. These other two guys were on staff at the temple, and it makes me feel bad if you're on staff here. Yes, gosh, this really hurts, doesn't it? It's really easy when you're hanging around religious stuff all the time to get kind of callous. It's really easy to kind of just move in and go, I'm okay, I'm okay, you know, it's all right, and and really be centered on that. But here comes this guy who shouldn't be at all concerned. And, 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 And Jesus sets him up for something totally unexpected. Because if you read this story, and as you're going along in the story, you can get the kind of the idea of what's going on. You know, we love, you know, the priest, the rabbi kind of stories and all those kind of things. Because we love to kind of poke fun at the hypocrisy of the ones who should really get it. And and so they're all kind of laughing along. And in their mind, I think they're thinking that the next guy they're going to talk about is you. Kind of the good guy who goes to the temple or the good woman goes to the temple and, and they're serving God. But they're not on staff. They're not paid to be good. Right? But he doesn't do that. He pokes at all of us and he goes, guess what? The guy who doesn't even go to church. The guy who is a Samaritan. And and a Samaritan, if you know in Jesus' day, they were half-breeds. They were hated foreigners. You look at what was happening here when we looked at that song, you know, you got to change the world by loving, and you saw all the the kind of contrast of what's going on there. That's exactly what was happening in their day. There were all kinds of murders and and fights and and things going on between these two groups. This this Samaritan group is just a small group of people who were in the middle of Palestine, who were people that when they they dispersed and they took, and and these nations like uh, um, Babylon and and Assyria took the people out and brought them out, these people stayed pure even though they weren't in the nation. The people stayed behind. This area here, they were the ones who, who began to give up their faith and they began to marry Gentile um, people in the surrounding village, and, and they didn't any longer have a temple to begin to worship at, so they began to worship at a place called Mount Gerizim, which is where when Joshua came in, they had blessing and curses of the law read. And the blessings were on Gerizim, and many of them say that Mount of Gerizim was this fruitful, luscious 
land. So when he talked about the blessings, you could see this. And then you looked at Mount Ebal, it was a rocky, kind of barren kind of thing. And so when they would say it, the curses made sense. And here are these people. They're living in this pocket of land. They are racially people who are hated by the Jews because they are mixed blood, half-breeds. Not only half-breeds, they are also worse than that. They're heretics. They have actually no longer come to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. They worship at Gerizim, and they have their own priesthood, and they have their own sacrifice. They have their whole own religious system, and they hated each other. And Jesus says, this guy, not you, not someone on staff, this guy stops, shows compassion, has mercy, This guy isn't callous. The word compassion is used a number of times in this passage, but it's also used in Luke quite often. In chapter 15, it's used when Jesus tells a story about two sons, one a prodigal one who goes away and and, and spends all the money, comes back economically destitute, morally corrupt, the, the dad's kind of in, in that story, if that would happen with your own son, you would just write him off. You'd never look for him again. You'd take him out of the will. They're dead to you. And the story shows that the father has such love for this one who has gone away, such love and compassion and such mercy that he every day it gives this picture of him going out to the end of his property, looking down the road, hoping to see his son come home. And one day he sees him, and it says when the father saw him, he ran to him, which was you know, below their dignity. They wouldn't even run to him. He has to come to me. But he runs to him, filled, it says, with compassion because he saw his own returning, one of his family, his son, And Jesus says the Samaritan in the same way sees the guy on the road who normally you would just hate each other, sees him as one of his family. I got thinking about this. If our nation was attacked, we're kind of in a screwy time, so I'm not going to make a lot of political comments, but we're in a screwy time, aren't we? Things are divided like never ever before. But my guess would be if we were under attack, do you think we would come together even though we had those differences? Raise your hand if you think so. Okay. The rest of you are skeptics. Um, This world is incredibly divided. Do you think if some force from outside this world came and attacked this world, this is my crazy mind, I was thinking about this actually on the car ride here. If this world was attacked from the outside, do you think this world would come together and figure out a way to resist? Probably. Guess what? It is being attacked by a force outside. It's evil. It's Satan. It's all the stuff you see pouring out of people. And what what does Paul say? How are we to look at those? Our battle is not against what? Flesh and blood. But our hearts should be in those situations where God might be asking you to take one step of love. Maybe it's a step of kindness. Maybe it's a note you write. Maybe it's you don't react in anger. Maybe it's you don't talk about this. I don't care what it is. But God is saying, look at them as a brother and sister. Look at them as a part of the family of God. In them, Jesus says, when you hand even a glass of water in my name, you're handing it to who? Jesus. So there's this contrast that he makes between 
knowing and doing, and, and then what I would call callousness, kind of an apathy and compassion that allows for us to see people the way Jesus sees people. Because it's so easy to become apathetic and calloused. It's so easy to start to just justify and defend and deflect. But I encourage you, don't do it. I know in my own relationship with people that those sometimes who are closest to you, when you find, it's really hard to, it's hard to see sometimes when you become defensive. But if you can ask Jesus to help you see it, your heart is right underneath that. And something can happen that can truly be incredible about your transformation. And then there's a contrast what I call injustice and generosity. Jesus contrasts the injustice of the robbers with the economic goodness of the business person. The story has seven scenes to it, and the first is very typical of our own world. Someone in the first scene is ripped off, really hurting. Here we're told left for dead. And then you have some other scenes. And the last scene is a very interesting one. It's what I call, it's, a, it's very common to our world, too. It's, an, it's a scene of economic generosity. Jesus, we're called, sent out not just to know and do. We're called, sent out not just to kind of build our own little circles and walls, but to actually show compassion, to see people as he sees them. And we're called and sent out not just to take care of ourselves and, and to get stuff for us, but we're actually called to, as even business people, those of you who are in that realm, you're called to also be in a place where you take what you have and share what you have with others around you. I got done after this message, and I had someone come up to me, and I may have them even share in next week's message, but they just sat down and said, I can't tell you how God blessed me anonymously through someone. It's this incredible story, which I won't share, but I got to hear it, so you guys can be jealous. Anyway, um, who stops to help here? Not the priest, not the Levite, but the hated foreigner who's a business person. And the business person comes with Christ-like compassion, does something through his economic capacity. I was, um, we've been working, a group of 20 of us are, are looking towards the fall, and we're looking at building within our church this whole concept, the idea that work really matters. What you do, where you work matters. Not in just trying to start Bible studies and things like that, but what you do matters in building God's kingdom. And so we've been looking at some books, and I've been reading one of the books by a lady named Amy Sherman. And it's called Kingdom Calling and Vocational Stewardship for the Common Good. And she makes this point that I think is really interesting. She's talking about Proverbs chapter eleven ten, where it says in Proverbs, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. You've got to ask, well, why is the city rejoicing? What does rejoicing look like? She goes on to say that the word rejoicing is a very unique term. It's only found one other place in the Old Testament. The word rejoice means this in Proverbs 11.10. It's the idea of like when if the, if the Vikings won the Super Bowl, do you think we'd throw a party? Oh, man, you guys aren't good. Okay, um, if the Cubs, no, uh, yeah. <laughs> think about the kind of rejoicing that happens when, when something great happens, maybe in a situation that you've been putting all your energy into, think of World War II when the soldiers came back and the ticker tape parades, right? That's what this word looks like. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices, goes nuts and crazy. And here's what she says. I like this. She says, by this, we realize that the righteous in their prospering must be making a remarkably 
positive difference in their city. So as you are prospering in all the different ways, not just financially, but in all the ways in your soul, you're making a difference where you live, where you work. They must be, listen to this, stewarding their power, wealth, skills, influence for some common good to bring about noticeable, significant transformation in that city. Otherwise, what would be prompting the residents there to go crazy with gladness and gratitude? Clearly, the sadakim, or the righteous, he said, stewardship is not simply taking their used clothes over to Salvation Army thrift store and so that poor people finding them there being pleased to get a $100 dress for $5. That's not what it's about. No, the dancing in the streets rejoicing occurs when the righteous advance justice and peace in their city in such ways that vulnerable people, vulnerable people at the bottom stop being oppressed and have genuine opportunities and begin to enjoy spiritual and physical health and economic sufficiency and security. They were not just, you are not just as the righteous out there making money for yourself, you are actually, says Paul, listen to what Paul's comment is here. He's making a comment, actually. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. What you do, folks, matters, not just for what you provide here, but how you can be touched by God to make a difference in someone's life. And this one man was in a position to share, had the capacity to give. And so not only is there a contrast between knowing and doing and apathy and compassion, but there's a contrast between stealing and sharing or withholding when you have the opportunity to give and help. And the last is security and risk. And we'll close on this. The Samaritan stopped. The thieves could have still been hiding, and he still stops. The Samaritan got dirty and involved. He has no idea what this could lead to. He takes the guy, bloody, bruised, a mess, and puts him up on his own donkey, carries him, takes time to do that. I'm sure he was busy. He got dirty and involved. And, the, and, and we're even told this, that he says, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. The Samaritan took time. Probably the most precious commodity that we have, Right? I think our security, our life, our own stuff, Jesus says, gets in the way sometimes of really loving people. We fail to love due to fear, right? What is someone else going to think? We fail to love due to prejudice. The word prejudice means to prejudge. It's an interesting thing. We look at someone, we make up our mind, we go, well, they're, just, they're a lost cause, and we prejudge. We fail to love due to cost. We fail to love through hurry. I'll close on this illustration, and, and, and I'll just say we won't get to the content part, but that's what you're going to get for the next few weeks, okay? So it'll all show up then. We fail to love through hurry. I had an interesting um, thing, because in my life, hurry is one of the ways that I think I fail to love. And so I was, uh, Grace and I were in bed um, about a week ago, so I'm going to tell a story. I didn't tell you this, but anyway... Um, and we're sitting there and we're talking and, and I don't know if it's because my mother's passing and then with my father and the, moving him up to a, a assisted living up here and with other people that have gotten gravely ill that have passed and other things in my life and, and, and maybe it's Prince, I don't know, anyway, um, no, not Prince, anyway. But I was just feeling sentimental, I was feeling like, you know, I want for the next 20 years of my life, 
I just said to Grace, Grace, I really would love for us to enjoy the next 20 years. And I was kind of, you know, in that place. And, and it was really funny because um, Grace's response was, well, I guess things will have to change. And I'm thinking, wait a second. <laughs> you know, here I am, the idealist and all, you know, emotion, excitement. Just all I really was looking for was, yeah, let's enjoy the next 20 years. Now, I got to say to some of you in marriages, you know, one of the great things about being married and doing this kind of hard work of loving and staying in relationship and, and working through things and, and, and really committing yourself, not having a plan B, but staying in a plan A, is that over time you really learn how to love one another. So what could have been like a two-month fight, and probably on my part, not on hers, was really only about 10, 15 minutes because as I came to the place and I began to really kind of think through it, I thought there was a sense where I go, and I asked some questions, and, and she was right, because in the pace that I've had over the last few months, there's just no space for, um, for people's involvement, or specifically, um, I just for grace, for her asking me for things is sometimes difficult. And so if things are so busy, how do you connect to people? And so I just want to encourage you to think about your life. I confess that. I ask you to start thinking about what is it, God? That's going to create some space and some room in my life. I don't know what it is. We have some contrast that I, I, I talked about. Maybe it's the knowing doing thing. Maybe in your life it really is the sense of the callousness versus the compassion that needs to grow. It, it could be in your life. There is this sense of some of the injustice versus the generosity. Or it could be you come to that last place. And it's just about my security. It's about me. Rather than what the risk is going to take to become something or someone. Where God can make you that kind of good neighbor that touches someone else.